Hi there, this is Andy uh, from Able Training, uh, Managing Director and Head Trainer, and this is the Able to Care podcast. Uh, so this session or episode is uh, looking at substance misuse and alcohol, and I've got a very special guest with me uh, here this week. So it's a, an old friend of mine, known each other for a number of years now, uh, Ian Peskett, who's got nearly a decade's worth of experience working a support worker around uh, alcohol and substance misuse. So very, very welcome to you, Ian. Thank Thanks for coming along. Thanks, Andy. Thanks for having me. Right. <coughs> so um, let's let's dive into. Obviously, you come from Nottingham, so thank you very much for co- traveling over today. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, so, do you want to tell us a bit about your story and just sort of introduce yourself and what what brought you into that world? Okay, I'll, I'll try and, and give you the abridged version. Um, <laughs> my name is Ian. I'm an addict, um, and I'll get more onto why I use that label later on. Mm-hmm. Um, <coughs> but about ten years ago. Uh, I went into rehab and I started to learn a little bit about who I was. Mm-hmm. Uh, prior to that, I had ideas about, about who I was and I wasn't happy with the results of that. Okay. I'd gone through life feeling insecure, dismissed, unheard, unloved. Um, I, I felt like I had no confidence or capability in myself. And as a result of that, I found solace in drugs, uh, in simplicity. Uh, from the age of 11, I was smoking weed. From the age of 15, I was taking amphetamine. From 16, I was taking heroin. From 26, I was drinking alcohol until I entered rehab at 31 years of age. Um, and the thing about substance misuse is that like, drugs, they present promises to an individual. And, and for a short time, they'll fulfill those promises. So um, like cocaine is going to make you think that you can dance and chat girls up and alcohol is going to make you think that you can take on the world and all these other ideas. Some people are going to have some experience of, of that to a degree, I'm assuming. Yeah. And eventually what, what I found personally was that those promises stopped being fulfilled over a time, but I find it difficult to stop taking the substance, kept falling for the promises and kept getting disappointed as a result of not having those promises fulfilled. Um, going to rehab taught me a little bit about about what that was all about, where it all came from, um, the the warped thinking of the mind of an addict and learning some basic spiritual principles like honesty, transparency, open-mindedness, willingness, compassion. And they kind of formed the bedrock of what I would term recovery. Mm. Um, and as a result of that, the best thing that I can do to preserve myself from falling back into the old patterns of behaviour is by giving those same principles to somebody else, by learning how to be... Uh, selfless by learning the concept of sacrifice um, and, and so then I'll, I'll spend my time giving my experiences to other people because it reaffirms it for me and reminds me who I am underneath yeah. um, the ideas that I have today if that makes sense yeah I really like the analogy you use there as far as like the false promises that that's uh, I haven't heard it kind of put that way before and that's that's quite a nice way of, of looking at it it's like a relationship that doesn't give back kind of thing or it's a domestic abuse in, relationship definitely yeah absolutely it starts off being all wonderful and all kind of lovely and stuff like that and then it starts to be well this isn't a two way relationship anymore this is more a controlling and coercive kind of relationship where the drugs have got the control um, and, and so the other thing you mentioned there was that you found that as an element of being able to give back and you sort of gave that as one of the things that has helped you to heal, to kind of give back and help others. Um, I, I suppose it's kind of that. It's, it, do you find for yourself, as far as working with others who are going through that, that it also constantly reaffirms some of those things that you need to remind yourself of when you're telling somebody else to do those things as well? Is that, is that kind of... Well, when we're looking at addiction... Um 
See, in some respects, I'm going to sit here and tell you that addicts are different from everybody else on the planet because we have a different line of thinking. But then on the other the other hand, I'm going to contradict that entirely and say that everybody has it to some degree or another. Yeah. yeah. Because the addiction is the inability to live in the here and now. Mm. I'm unable to handle life on life's terms and handle the feelings generated by it. So I find a coping strategy and invest in that. Yeah. And and some people, I mean, everybody does it to some degree, whether we're sitting there and watching Emmerdale at 7 p.m. every night just to switch off and forget that the world exists, or whether we're going to the gym three times a day, yeah. or whether we're overeating, undereating, we're trying to feel like we're in control of one aspect of our life because we feel out of control out of another area of our life that we're not looking at. Yeah. Um, but there's, there's something about addicts where we will take that to the nth degree and yeah. it has a, a larger detrimental effect on our existences. Yeah. Uh, and we'll deny that. Um, well, there's a principle uh, I sometimes uh, ref- refer to. I have a, a kind of a motivation triangle, which is an unmet need stimulates stress and stress stimulates a strategy. Um, and, and if that strategy doesn't work, then you keep then escalating that strategy up to find one that kind of works for you and stuff. And it, it, it sounds like that kind of fits that model exactly as far as, you know, the, the unmet need potentially is the uh, disconnection from society in some way or whether it be that significant low self-esteem or lack of connection with yourself I think a little bit as well that then leads to this stress response and then that stress response then leads to well how do I cope with that how do, how do I meet that on a day-to-day basis how do I kind of um, manage those feelings um, and, and and some people go through as you say I think when you say there's a difference, I think we all have the capacity to be addicts to some degree or another. It's just what we get addicted to. And, and obviously there is different levels of that. Um, but as you say, whether it's watching Emmerdale religiously and falling in down that trap, which is a, a, a great example of something bad, I think. But <laughs> or it would be Love Island now as well, wouldn't it? You know, that, that kind of vicarious, well, like, I, at least my life, life's not as bad as that. I always think that's a Jeremy Kyle kind of principle, isn't it? That people kind of get addicted to those kind of shows because at least, hey, at least I'm not as bad as that. Um, and uh, But whether it be driving too fast in your car when you're feeling agitated or whether it be biting your nails, you know, I, I, I teach a lot around self-harm behaviours. I think obviously self-harm and, and addictions kind of go very hand in hand because you know you are doing something or there's a point you probably reach, I should imagine, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, where you realise, I know this isn't good for me, but I choose to do it anyway. It, it's like smoking as a, a, a kind of thing. And I know that like we're both smokers or have been, whatever. And it's like, no matter how many people tell you it's not good for you, there is some connection that you have to it and is that a kind of similar thing that you think with with drugs definitely definitely and i and i mean so I'm, i have a, a line of thought where there's only two things that anybody's ever addicted to in reality and that's dopamine and serotonin yeah yeah and, and the vessel in which that we get that fired around our bodies the fastest becomes a thing that we become addicted to yeah and i think um as an addict i want all the payoff and none of the trade-off every behavior that anybody displays ever as a payoff the thing that we want and a trade-off the thing that we have to give up to get it and until we're realistic about those two factors and acknowledge that both exist then we run the risk of falling into detrimental patterns Mm. and it's so it's risk versus reward and i need to look at that stuff honestly but as an addict i won't and so 
I want to stop feeling so insecure yeah. and heroin stops me feeling so insecure. Yeah. That's all I'm looking at. Yeah. I'm not looking at everything that I'm trading off to get it. Yeah. Dignity, self-respect, hygiene, friendships, relationships. Yeah. I, I'm like, I was, I've been in prison for it and yet I still couldn't connect the dots mm. because I wasn't taking responsibility for my outcomes. Yeah. It's, it was somebody else's fault. So I'm sat in the, in the police station blaming the police for arresting me yeah. rather than acknowledging if I'd have kept my hands to myself, I wouldn't be there in the first place. Yeah. And that was one of the biggest things that I was taught in rehab is taking responsibility for my actions, mm. uh, taking ownership of myself and the things I do and things I think and feel. But I think that's, that's really important. And and so one of the things that, that I try and go over, we all know somebody, this is a, a good example that most of us have experienced. So if you're working in a place and, and you've got a particular colleague or member of staff that they do something wrong and the boss confronts them about it and sort of goes, hey, you messed up. Now, many of us would be able to go, hey, hands up, messed up, shouldn't have done that, I'll do better next time. But we all know that person who immediately fires back and go, well, nobody told me. And, you know, they definitely did get told. Or they go, well, does it really matter? Or that's not my fault. Or they, it was their fault because they didn't do their job properly. And they're immediately, and I refer to it, and um, uh, there's a lady called Brene Brown, who a uh, really good author worth watching her stuff around shame. She refers to it as a shame shielding, where it's kind of then suddenly I deflect that shame away from myself to others. Because to be able to recognize that making a mistake doesn't mean that you're useless requires self-esteem. So it's this principle of that shame is, so she describes it as guilt is I'm good, but I did bad, whereas shame is I am bad. And if you have that kind of concept in your head of, I am worth nothing, I'm worthless, unlovable, um, bad, uh, a waster, whatever it is, that still feels crap. <laughs> that still feels bad. So when you have something in your life that then reminds you of that, you shame it away. And the example you gave there, you know, blaming the police for the arresting you rather than being able to take that responsibility for, for doing the wrong is quite typical of that, that shame shielding. And I think it's really important to kind of recognize that, that that is a defense mechanism. It's it's not making the person bad for doing that. It's just that's the only way they feel they know how to protect themselves from that responsibility and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And it's <coughs> the, the deep irony in that is that most people don't actually know who they, they are. Mm. So they don't know the self. Um, it's something that I challenge people with all the time. Like, yeah. Who are you? Yeah, and then when they bring back the piece of paper with all the ideas of who they think they are, and I'm there crossing them out and saying, "Okay, now what?" Because you are not a brother. Yeah. You are not like you don't work at able training. That's not who you are. That's a thing you do. Yeah. And so then we're looking at the concept of identity. Then mm. and it's like the reality of it is the identity is a construct, which means it can be deconstructed and reconstructed. Yeah. But it's if I believe that I am my behaviors, my actions, my thoughts and feelings, I'm going to defend them to the end. Yeah. Um, and the shame stuff, like, the, I try to move people to a point of recognising that there's no shame if there's willingness to change. Yeah. It doesn't matter what's happened, just do you want it to keep happening? Yeah. And if not, what do you want to do about it? I was told very early doors in, in rehab, like, don't ask why, ask how. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was just in relation to somebody challenging me to do a thing, like, go and wash the pots. Yeah. Why? No, how? Um, yeah. But then I've kind of explored that a little bit deeper and, so if, if I ask you why you did a thing, right? So okay, you've, you've left your shoes lying about or whatever. You know, there's a conversation that we're going to get in with partners or whatever it is. Yeah. And there's an element of blame and an element of antagonism held within that question. Um, if I ask you why you did it, all you'll do is to yourself reaffirm that that's how you act under those conditions. Mm. 
And if those conditions are leading you to a negative outcome, why would you want to reaffirm that that's how you act? Yeah. You need to learn how to do something different. Yeah. And so it's like, well, what do we do next? How do we move forward from this? Because all recovery is for me is what next? Yeah. I can sit there and live in the past forever, and I did. I mean, yeah. beating myself up for past mistakes, but I can't change all that. No. I can't. I can change my relationship to it. The best way to do that is changing how I operate today. A hundred percent. I think there's an importance of the the role modeling humility for that, isn't it? That that you know, none of us get it right hundred percent of the time. Everybody makes mistakes. But I think there's this perception that certain people are very good at and certain sectors of society, and I know that you said you wanted to avoid the, the rant of schools and stuff like that we'll get onto, but I think there is this aspect sometimes of um certain people never make mistakes and even if they do, they never admit it. And I think that gives that kind of perception sometimes of um, the mistake. I think even uh, we we could talk about the schools a little bit, so we won't go onto our soapbox too much. But the there is this kind of be, being told off for giving the honest answer sometimes of I, I don't know. And I think there is this that as soon as you feel like you don't know who you are, what you want to be, where you want to go in life, whatever it is, that that's the wrong answer. Rather than actually being that, no, that's the honest answer. <laughs> so why would you ever get punished for the honest answer rather than uh, rather than just making something up that doesn't feel right anyway and those sorts of things? Yeah, definitely. Well, I'm 41 and I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. No. <laughs> no. I'll find out when I get there. Yeah, yeah. Same age, mate. And I, I don't know either. I'm just trudging along whichever path it's kind of taken on that feels right at the time. And I might suddenly decide, actually, no, this, this path feels wrong now. I've got to look elsewhere and figure it out from that. So so as far as, um, as he said, uh, I think at the beginning there, that you started smoking weed at the age of 11. So that was your first introduction into kind of drugs. Do you think that was, um, was that a factor of the people you were hanging around at the time? Or did you go out looking for that, do you think? You know, it's chicken and egg kind of principle, isn't it? But, you know, what, what came first? It was definitely playing up to the crowd. Yeah. Uh, I had, I still have technically, um, a stepbrother yeah. who I looked up to at the time because he appeared confident and accepted in ways that I were not. Yeah. Um, and then we were around at somebody's house one time and they were smoking buckets. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not going to tell the people at home what that is. Leave it alone. Stay away from drugs. <laughs> uh, but it, but it, it, this... This uh, brother of mine was was like showing off, playing up to the crowd, smoking buckets, getting applause, and all that stuff. Oh, yeah. I thought, yeah, if I, it's weird because I look back and I use this line like, if I do that, I'll be cool too. And I never consciously thought that or said that. Yeah, but that definitely underpins that action. Yeah, it definitely does. I'll be accepted too. Yeah, because I never felt accepted. I always felt sidelined um and a lot of that was was my own insecurities looking back but i didn't know that mm. how do you know that stuff at 11 years of old? i didn't even know that i was fearful yeah um who, who admits yeah. that they're scared yeah. because to do that is to open yourself up for attack anyway or at least it was in the circles i was spending time with or at least vulnerability, isn't it? vulnerability yeah. is still considered weakness of course yeah. it is um and what i found was that it turned my give a shit switch off and uh, where, where before I was insecure and scared, I didn't feel so insecure and scared. Yeah. Um, until the paranoia started kicking in a few day, years down the line, when the promises stopped being fulfilled with it. Yeah. And again, it didn't stop me taking it until I found something else. Mm. Um, so yeah, it was definitely playing up to the crowd. Um, and, I, and I felt like I had a purpose as well. Uh, it, it, it sounds weird saying this, but, you know, I mean, 
Carl Young says, like, the pendulum of the mind doesn't swing between uh, right and wrong. Yeah. It swings between sense and nonsense. And it made sense for me to do what I was doing at the time. I didn't care about school. What yeah. they were giving me wasn't relatable. Yeah. Um, I couldn't see how, like, trigonometry or quadratic equations or whatever other stuff they were talking about that week, I couldn't see how that related to me in my life. Mm. Um, and then being part of a peer group, feeling included, finding excitement, finding what I perceived to be joy at the time, that made sense to me. Yeah, and so that's what I did, and then with that, um, greed and selfishness follow very quickly, mm. and so then I start committing acts which are less than favourable mm. in the eyes of society, mm. and then with that comes police attention, and so I was arrested for shop theft quite a number of times in my teens, as a result of pursuing my next high. Yeah, uh, and, that, and that pattern of behaviour continued regardless of who I was spending time with or what drugs I was taking. Mm. The, the underlying principles of greed and selfishness yeah. were the bedrock of it. Yeah. yeah. And, and I didn't know that at the time. I had to go to rehab to find that. It's like yeah. I went to prison 10 times, none of it was a deterrent and none of it helped me. And I went to rehab once and I've stayed clean since. So yeah. there's definitely something to be said for rehabilitation. Yeah. And unfortunately, our society is more like um, the United States than the rest of Europe, which seems to be treating it like the mental health issue that it is rather yeah. than a criminal matter. Yeah, yeah. Which is why we're seeing a lot of destitute people on the streets with a, with uh, substance misuse problems yeah. not getting the help they rightly deserve and need. 100%, yeah, 100% <laughs> agree with you on that. I think there, there is still a, a big thing as far as... Nobody acts in a way, nobody makes a choice that at the time they think is a bad idea. And I think that's a, a strange concept for people. Um, when I'm when I'm teaching around, I'll see you know I teach a lot around behaviour, particularly and and behaviours that challenge others. Um, and we make a list. A uh, common thing we start with is we make a list of kind of behaviours that they're finding challenging. And I kind of go, all of those have a benefit. They must have a benefit, otherwise you wouldn't do them. Yeah. You know, and and we've all had it occasion where we've you know lost our temper and said something we wish we hadn't or whatever. But at that time. It felt like the right choice. Of course. Yeah. You, you may have immediately gone, well, oh, I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> but in that moment, it just felt the right thing. So taking that away, I think the big thing is trying to move away. I think so many people still have this dichotomy of good and bad, as you say, and the um, the analogy from Jung there of, of shifting between the, you know, the pendulum of balance. It isn't a black and white scenario at all. You know, good people do bad things and bad people do good things, and it isn't a fixed thing. And I think there is still that slight stigmatization around drugs and alcohol misuse and stuff like that, that it's a case of, therefore, they must be bad. And I think even with the, the homeless situation, I was, you know, I'm sure you're very aware of like Maslow's hierarchy, for instance. You know, if, if, if I'm worried about where my next meal is coming from, why would I worry about a job? Yeah. Because I'm too busy focused on the thing that I need right now. And if I can't get that thing right now easily, but I have no self-esteem, I have no secure attachments, well, then how can I get my dopamine release and stuff like that? And just out of interest, have you come across what's called the Rat Park Studies? Yes. Yes, yeah. And I think they're a, a, a fantastic thing and more people need to know about that that very basic principle. Um, because I've used similar things and uh, I'll talk in a sec, but... For those who you know listening or watching that, that aren't familiar, there was an original study that was done that kind of um, affected people's perceptions of addiction. Um, the original experiment was done with a with a rat in a kind of secluded cage, and it was given a choice between I think it was water or cocaine, essentially. 
And all the rats chose the cocaine over the water and became very, very ill and many died as a result. So this is suddenly a case of flipping egg. This dopamine release that the rats are getting is more powerful than the basic requirements of life. So that kind of change people's perception of this isn't once, you know, the first time you choose, but then it's not a choice from then on in kind of thing. Um, but then they did the, they changed it where they realized these rats were in understimulated environments. And they did these rat parks that were highly stimulated, lots of colors, lots of levels, high levels of social interaction with other rats and stuff like that. And suddenly the rats who had the choice between the water and the cocaine were drinking the water because they were getting their dopamine from the environment, from their interactions, from the social setting that they were in. And I think that just as a basic understanding to go in, how could we solve the drug problem isn't about fighting the fires. It's about putting the things in place that, that cause those fires to happen in the first place. They did a similar, similar thing with knife crime as well. And, um, you know, I'm willing to be corrected on this if I haven't got it quite right. But I believe there were three different um, cities that looked at their knife crime rates. Uh, it was London, Birmingham and Glasgow, I think. And Birmingham and London both increased stop and search. And Glasgow increased funding to community projects. And guess which one had the reduced knife rate? <laughs> the one that people felt safer. <laughs> it's just that if people feel frightened, they're going to carry a weapon. So is, is being stopped and searched making people feel safer or actually increasing the fear if there's a, there's a poor relationship with the kind of authority and stuff like that? So just to kind of switch it over, what helped you? What, what do you think made the difference to you? Was there a moment that you realized this is something I want to change? Um, or was there anybody in your life that kind of made a difference? Or, or what was it for you? Uh, I mean, hope hope was the, the initial principle that I needed to tune into. And it was something that I didn't experience until I hit rehab. Right. Um, I mean, I, I had experienced hope in a very shallow sense. Like, I hope my dealers are, I hope he's got what I want. <laughs> but, but not real, yeah. genuine, like, affirming hope. Hope for yourself, yeah. 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 Um, so like I said at the top of this, I felt very different and very isolated and very separate from humanity at large. Mm. And, and you've touched upon it uh, without exploring the concept of connection when you're mm. talking about the rat park and its connection that, that, that underpins or lack of yeah. that underpins the addiction. And so then there's an element of that that society is responsible for yeah. in inclusion mm. uh, and exploration and allowing a, a safe place for people to explore their issues, but also the onus, I, I mentioned to you in the car ride on the way here, where there's an onus on me to be understood. I need to be honest and open with you to be yeah. able to access whatever support you can offer. Yeah, yeah. If you was to follow the 12 steps um, format of recovery, you'd end up eventually finding out about the 12 traditions. Mm. Um, and personal recovery depends on unity is one of the lines out of it. And so when I look at my experiences as an addict, uh, people fell into two categories. There were tools or obstacles. I never saw humanity. They were either in my way or to be used to be able to facilitate my using. Mm -hmm. So there's an onus on me to take ownership of that massively. Of course there is, because yeah. I'm abusing the people around me. Yeah. Um, and then there's also the, the aspect of me that needs to meet these people as equals. Once I learned how to start meeting people as equals, then it was easier for me to facilitate my recovery. Mm. But then I also needed the hope that it was possible. And so then I look at the interventions that were made on me throughout my childhood, teens, up until I was 31. Um, and the, the angle was, was always coming from a position of shame and superiority. 
It was. So be that uh, parents, teachers, probation officers, prison officers, the police themselves, whatever, friends, wh- whoever. They're all talking down to me rather than meeting me at my level. Mm. Uh, when I hit rehab, people actually spoke to me rather than at me. You know mm. what I mean? And, and, and that allowed me to feel included in it rather yeah. than being told what to do. I was encouraged to join them as they did. Yeah. Uh, and that, and that, that massively helped. Yeah. Uh, and like in regards to my substance misuse, that was very easily resolved. In regard to my addiction, that's something I had to keep top side of. Yes. Uh, within a week of entering rehab, I'd explored and understood my relationship to substances, mm-hmm. drugs and alcohol. Uh, but my thinking was still warped. Yeah. My emotional centre was still off key. Yeah. And they were they're the things that I need to be watchful of because that's that's the ideas machine and not all of the ideas that come out of it are good. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Absolutely. So then I have to learn to be open, honest, transparent. I need to be willing to take on guidance, advice. I need to be of service to others rather than self-serving. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're things that it benefits me to be watchful of. Yeah. I won't. I won't pretend that I've mastered that stuff by any stretch. Yeah. I still have selfish moments, but thankfully they don't lead me to the same detrimental places I went yeah. 10 years ago. So was rehab something that was kind of um, enforced up? Was it part of um, a making amends kind of program or was it something you chose to get engaged with? I don't, I don't quite know if it sits in either of those two camps, if I'm honest. Mm, okay. Uh, so I was homeless on the streets of Mansfield and I was unable to get a property via Mansfield District Council, but I was in the Mansfield District Council office one day and some some guy who I'd met through a service uh, came up to me and said, I know of this place in Nottingham, it's a dry house and I'll help move you on. So I didn't hear rehab. Mm. The image that was conjured in my head was a hostel where I'd go out, get pissed, go back and get my head down. Yeah. Uh, I, went, <coughs> I went to this building and sat in what was called a pre-admissions group. There were a few other people who were going to be attending or mm. at least waiting to, to access this project. And there were a couple of senior members of the project mm. and the the manager of the place at the time, uh, Chris Smith. Mm. Um, and I know that he recalls that first meeting very differently to I do because he believes I shot him down every time he spoke. And I do have a tendency to talk <laughs> over people. Uh, <laughs> something I've been challenged on very frequently in my life. But I did listen intently to everything he said and I left there with the idea that he knows something that I don't and I want to know what it is. Right. So I went back for an assessment couple of days later and during that assessment he told me stuff about me that I didn't know until that point which I found very interesting Mm. Uh, I've since learned that it's a it's a counseling technique called intrusive empathy is what he used on me and it's like not we ain't that different it's very easy to spot people's motivations and behaviors yeah but if you've never been challenged on it you think you're the first one yeah. And you think you're the only one because you've shrouded your entire life in secrecy. So you think you're getting away with it. Mm-hmm. It's like you get spotted, you're like, damn. Uh, and so you can either be defensive at that point or you can accept the intervention. And Chris Smith had a very, very uh, good way of allowing you to feel safe in his presence. Mm. Uh, and that, that formed quite a lot of what I needed to be able to... So to see the non-judged but understood. Yeah, massively, massively. Yeah. And, and understood in a way that maybe you hadn't experienced before. Oh, God, definitely. It, I, at the time, I perceived him to be probably one of the most powerful people I'd ever met. 
Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. What, what was it about him that, that made him powerful? He could see things that others couldn't. Right, okay. He could see things that others couldn't was the biggest thing. Yeah. Like I was awestruck. I used to watch him in groups and he'd sit there with his eyes shut and everybody would do their shit and he'd just have his eyes shut as if he's asleep. And then he'd feed back to everybody and just give him a nugget of gold. And it was like, that's impressive. <laughs> just the memory part of it never mind the bit yeah, yeah, so back, just the fact that he remembered what they said it yeah was, yeah yeah. so that through that process I, I had, I've had some very good mentors mm. yeah, and, so I, and I've had choices throughout all that and being allowed to recognise that I have choice and that it is entirely up to me what I do but that I have the choice because addiction you don't no you just don't it's, it's the next one it's the next one you referenced it about yeah. 10 minutes ago yeah um, so then Finding recovery in the first place allows me the freedom of choice. Mm. But then what do I do with that freedom? Mm. Um, and so then I, I had, had to learn how to take on guidance and suggestion from the people that had trod the path before me. Yeah. Because that's that's what we did, we passed the baton. Yeah. And some people will pick up that baton and other people will reject it. And, and I've worked with people from both of those camps. And sadly, mm. the ones who don't pick it up don't tend to stay around for very long. Yeah, 100%. So we've been through a bit of a journey so far as far as looking at kind of where you started, what maybe some of the causes, and obviously I, I think we could you know delve more into and, and you know there isn't one thing that ever led you down that path. It was a multitude. Um, and there's an element of the, the psychological, the things you needed, but there's also the social, the group you're in and stuff like that. So there is a principle, uh, obviously the nature-nurture argument is well gone and nobody talks about it anymore. And obviously there is... Some people do seem to have a slight biological predisposition towards vulnerability to addiction and things like that. Some people, it doesn't mean they don't have control over it. It just means they maybe fall into that path more easily than, than others do, uh, you know, not through any fault of their own. Uh, they're just going to have to work harder to come out the other side of that. But with that kind of biological, psychological and social environmental factors, when you were kind of coming out the other side, was there kind of a few different things that you did as well as obviously your mindset? Sounds like it, it changed dramatically by having some really positive role models around you, people seeing hope in you that you maybe hadn't seen in yourself before or, or no, not the hope. They gave you the hope to see things in yourself that you realised maybe always there. Um, there's a, a wonderful analogy from... Uh, from a, a, a psychological therapy technique called ACT, which I really like the analogy, which is you are the blue sky and your thoughts and your feelings are the clouds that are passing in front of them. So that blue sky is always there and sometimes it's a proper thunderstorm, but you realise that those thoughts and feelings aren't you, they are separate to you. And if you rise above the clouds enough, the blue sky is always there. So it sounds like you realise that in yourself a little bit, that you started to see the blue sky past the clouds a little bit. But did you also do things to kind of change? Were, were there people around you that you think perpetuated the, the substance misuse that you also sort of separated from slightly? Do you change habits in your behaviour? Yeah. Um, so like, like I said, I was living in Mansfield before and this place was in Nottingham. Yeah. Um, and it got to a point where uh, I was leaving the project. Mm -hmm. And I had options. Yeah. I could either tread the path known. Yeah. Or find a new path. Yeah. Um, 
and the path known was go back to Mansfield, Titchfield Park, bottom side of shouting at pigeons because that's what my life had been reduced to. It, it was that, that was as, as sad as it was. Yeah. Um, and but so I had that. I, I, the reason I laughed is because I still imagine you shouting at pigeons now. I still shout <laughs> at pigeons now. I just don't drink cider while I do it. <laughs> change everything. Yeah, Remember what I built in a day. I still see you shouting at a pigeon. Yeah, I don't. I think that might just be part of your personality, mate. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. And, so. Then I had the option of exploring my potential of living in Nottingham. Mm. And there was like a place that had shit. It was a slumlord, but he had shared houses that I could get into quickly and that was yeah. enough as a starting base. And then I could either sit and isolate and listen to my own thinking again, which is a dangerous slippery slope, or I could do what I was shown. And what I was shown at the time was engage with local services, which was double impact at the time. Uh, I'd already been signed up to them, which was good. I'd already got a footing, so there's a transitional element, which which I believe is necessary when we're looking at rehabilitation recovery, uh, rather than just move from there to there and expect people just to pick stuff up. It doesn't yeah. work that way. And then I also followed uh, Narcotics Anonymous. It was primarily for uh, social reasons. I needed a friendship group mm. uh, rather than doing the actual work because it took me quite a few years before I actually did step work. Mm. Uh, thankfully I stayed clean for the duration and while there I was able to pick up and explore and understand recovery concepts to a better level mm. uh, I was able and, but like back, backing up a little there was there was a guy who was in rehab uh, I call him Uncle Ben even though he's younger than me um, I, th- I think I've got family issues I ended up de- uh, getting a mother and a father while I was in rehab was like, yeah. um, but I watched him basically turn from a boy into a man in front of my very eyes Right. Just for the very act of putting his hand up. So if people asked, we need a volunteer to do this task, his hand was up and he'd do it. No complaints, no queries, he'd just get stuck in. And I looked at, like, I watched that unfold as I'm thinking about who I used to be, mm. like, because while I'm still in this transitional element, if I could continue being who I was or I could be something different. And I recognised that every time I took an action, it had to have a price tag attached. And it was a very dirty way of thinking. Right, wasn't going to do anything for anybody else. I yeah. needed immediate gratification for any actions I took. Yeah, and so I pieced all that together, and I watched this unfold. And I thought I want to be more like that. Uh, which that idea I carried through into into like local services, where mm. they offered me the opportunity to do um, health and social care qualification, yeah. which was unrelatable to me at the time. I didn't see that there would be anything, any benefit for me. I had no no intentions of moving into this line of work, but they said, "Do you want to do it?" So I'm like, "Yes." Uh, and that that then allowed me to move into peer mentoring, which then I was then volunteering, and then an opportunity to volunteer at the rehab came up, and so then it, this sequence of events unfolded of opportunities that weren't there before, just off the back of me putting my hand up. Yeah. Where before I got to rehab, I had no opportunities. My life was very limited. Yeah. Because it had been reduced to the park bench, bottle of cider, and the sky rise. Yeah. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah, I like I like that kind of principle. The it's almost becoming a yes man, but a yes man to the right things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's before you probably would have said no to those things. It's just, and that, that's really interesting what you said as far as that that instant gratification. Um, I think I think that's that's significant. Um, the 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 ability to delay gratification. I think for many people they have that as almost a what they think is an instinctive skill, um, like the ability to, it's like, I sometimes talk about, I don't know whether you've ever seen what's called the marshmallow test, which they do with with kids. So 
Yes, um, yes. Yeah, yeah. They stick a marshmallow in front of a kid. and One night two later. Yes, that, that's exactly it. Yeah. So this, uh, you have one now. You can eat it straight away. But if you can wait until I come back, you can then have two marshmallows. And what's really interesting about this study, I mean, one is always a fun study to watch because the way that some kids manage to delay gratification is is amazing, where they'll kind of cheat the system where they, they lick it or something like that, or they cover it with a bowl so they can't see it, or they close their eyes and just pretend or whatever. Um, but some kids, the person's not even left the room and they've eaten a marshmallow. And it's like, okay, so why, why would I wait? I want it now. What's really interesting about that study is, though, they've done it as a longitudinal study. So they looked at the kids who... Um, took the marshmallow straight away and no kids who delayed gratification and looked at the outcomes in later life of what what's become of them. And the kids who instantly ate the marshmallows, as you may, may guess, their outcomes were not as positive related to how well they did at school, what kind of jobs they got, even success in relationships and things like that. Because I think there is this, this expectation... With something like, if we take school as an example, and, and where you've got an exam at the end of the year, and you're meant to stay motivated to kind of go, you're going to have no marshmallow for the entire year. And in fact, you're not aiming for a marshmallow even at the end of the year, because even when you pass that exam, it's not going to get you a marshmallow. You're actually planning for a marshmallow you're not going to get for nearly 10 years <laughs> time. And how are many kids who couldn't even wait for the marshmallow until the person left the room, meant to be able to aim for those positive outcomes. It's never going to happen. And whether it be down to neurodivergence or, or you know, if you've got kids with ADHD, for instance, it's not a, it's not a choice. It is a case of impulse do. I want the marshmallow, take it. Why, why would I wait? It just doesn't make sense to them anything else because the difference in the chemicals in their brain and stuff. Now, I think for me... Um, the brain's plasticity means that they shouldn't be given up on. That doesn't mean they never can. It just needs to be understood and then go, well, let's build up that skill. Let, let's focus on that. Let's change the way that they're, they're taught to kind of go, well, let's make sure we're getting more instant gratification through the work that they do rather than having to wait and prolong that. And, and expecting because they can't do that, they're then wrong, which is what then leads to the lower self-esteem and stuff like that. And um, before we started the podcast, you were, you were talking about schools, which I've kind of gone back to a few times. But I, I use this kind of metaphor that you've got a room full of different animals, but they're all judged on how well they can climb a tree. And the fish in the corner is going, I'm shit at this. <laughs> and the elephant's going, I'm not very good either. But they're all comparing themselves against the monkeys and the squirrels and stuff like that that seem to be whipping up it and doing amazingly. And they're thinking, well, it just we must not be good enough rather than if they put us in the right environment or did things that we enjoyed or in a way that we could approach, we would actually thrive. Um, and yeah, that definitely leads into everything we've been talking about a little bit, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, and I think that's definitely something to be explored uh, by parents so that the parents can help the child to understand mm. that unfortunately the system is rigged yeah. but that doesn't mean you have to have a bad life yeah yeah uh, and exploring mm. and identifying passion and purpose at home so that mm. okay you've got to go to school that's yeah. the thing you've got to tick that box but after school we're going to go off and do the thing you want to do yeah and then that that then ends up creating its own incentive reward yeah. scheme, yeah. Uh, but also helps the child to understand themselves and recognise, well, what is it that I want to do? Because mm. they're going to find it. As, yeah. soon as, as soon as they find their passion, it's like, right, crack on. Off, yeah. off you go. That's your life path now. Yeah. Well, <laughs> the thing is, the challenge with that, isn't it? Is, and, and maybe this kind of does lead into a little bit uh, in, in some of the indications you've given about your history. There are some parents who either don't want to do that or they can't do that. 
either because they're going through similar experiences and challenges themselves through through their difficulties. So you've got this kid who's in this system that, I mean, uh, my sister's got, got two young children and, and she says she spends most evenings doing the homework for her daughter because it's so advanced that she wouldn't be able to do it on herself. So it's my sister being tested on how good she is at making stuff and geography and stuff like that. Um, but she says, I, I, she kind of commented going, there must be parents out there who don't do what I do or can't do what I do, whether through circumstantial factors related to they've got to work or whatever it is due to lower social economic or whether it be down to them struggling to be able to look after themselves let alone look after a, a child as well so it's it kind of again there's lots of aspects there of setting up to fail and, and maybe there needs to be an earlier kind of detection of you know the kid who's not doing their homework is it it may not be the kid's fault it may not be the parent's fault i'm not saying that but it could be so do they need more support do they need that extra kind of input to within the school itself yeah and unfortunately because i see, I see what you're saying there and mm. it is it's difficult and unfortunately people will fall through the cracks because there's no provision for it yeah, yeah. and they definitely should be yeah they definitely should be you know it takes a village to raise a child yeah. and that's and, and I think we don't have that we have a lot of isolated islands we that, do that's it that's how we've developed now as, yeah. as a culture Massive, it's it's yeah. like you. most people won't even meet their next door neighbour's gaze when they pass them in the corridor. And it's yeah. like, if you can't even achieve that level of connection, yeah. what hope is there for us at yeah. large? Yeah. Which which is kind of a sombre note, so we should probably move on from that. <laughs> <laughs> we don't, but it, yeah, and it's the unanswerable question. If we could solve that question in a podcast, we'd have Nobel Prizes and, and <laughs> we'd need to be doing podcasts. <laughs> but yeah, definitely a big challenge. So... Um, just to kind of draw into a close, maybe as far as kind of last things to kind of discuss and, and talk about, um, what do you feel? So I think for anybody listening to this podcast, whether they're working in the field or supporting those with, with substance misuse, um, obviously we, we have a lot of uh, people who working in children's homes and looked after children, whether it be foster carers or whether it be children's home workers. And I think that's always a big concern for them as far as substance misuse, as far as, you know, how do they help? What do they do? How do they prevent it as much as how do they then manage it when it happens and stuff like that? From your point of view and your experience, what works best? What definitely doesn't work? Um, yeah, just let's just go through a few bits if you want my sharing. Yeah, uh, what doesn't work is critical parent language. Yeah, need to have to got to should most. No, they haven't, and yeah. they'll prove that. Yeah, and th and they'll prove that from a position of rebellion, and they'll do that to their own detriment while witnessing it. A lot of the time, I did that myself. I knew that I was I was tanking myself, but I was going to show them that I'm going to do what that what they yeah. tell me. Um, so fostering an environment where the child feels safe to talk about whatever it is that they need to without being shamed. I mean, we kind of touched upon that already, but I yeah. want to reaffirm that. Um, because the, the odds are that they don't want to do the detrimental thing. They just can't see a way out not to do it because their options are limited on that front. Yeah. And so then, then you hopefully end up being able to engage in open discourse with them. Um, because I know that while I was being talked at, I wasn't listening to who was doing the talking. Uh, I was never going to give them the honest answer mm. uh, because one, I didn't want the action to be taken from me yeah. because if I told you that I wanted to go out robbing and spend the money on drugs, you were definitely going to try and stop me from doing that. Yeah. Uh, but then to be able to nip that in the bud in advance, I'm like, how are you feeling? Yeah. Uh, let's get into that stuff. And you know what? Most people aren't going to be able to tell you. You ask anybody out of the field, if, if I'll, I'll witness you and you look like you're not that, 
happy yeah. in a moment. The first thing you will say when I ask you how you are is that you're tired. Yeah. Because we immediately want to defend from that question by throwing out that because oh, that's an easy one. And yeah. You know what I mean? And so then we need to get to the point where we can do you know what? I'm sad, I'm frustrated, I'm scared, I'm lonely. I'm yeah. Being able to open up about that stuff and not have it thrown back in our faces. Yeah. I think I see so validation. Um so a lot of the tools that are kind of uh, I, I promote and stuff is around, you know, feelings being validated. So whether it be around and, and, and the closest I can uh, uh, kind of gauge is kind of the self-harm kind of thing is, is just the unconditional positive regard. You are valued for who you are, not for what you do. What you do is separate for your from yourself. So if that's something you have to do to cope with life at the moment, then that's what you have to do. And I don't judge you for that. Who am I to, you know, if it was a different circumstances, it could be me. Yeah. But I like you as you. You are worthwhile. And I think that's that starting point, isn't it? That you build that that sense of attachment and trust with that particular individual that um, I sometimes sort of trust is that fundamental, isn't it? I, why would I listen or accept criticism or any fight feedback from somebody I don't like and don't trust? All respect. All respect. A hundred percent. Absolutely. So you've got to kind of, that's got to be the foundation, hasn't it? Building attachments, building connection, building that kind of trust. Uh, and whether it is, and, and you said as well, um, I think you've mentioned it in the podcast or it might be in the car, that that kind of direct language as well, kind of like, like, I'm not trying to coerce you. I'm not trying to, you know, tell you who you should be, but sort your shit out. <laughs> there, there's, there's also, I mean, something that I like to do is I, I like to use humour to bypass the bullshit. Yeah, yeah. Um, because like somebody who's engaging in those kind of behaviours is going to try and pull the wool over your eye. Mm. Uh, unfortunately, the, for them, the lies are very easy to spot. Yeah. But yeah. most people won't challenge them. No. Because they've either got their own thing that they want to keep covered up. Yeah. Because if I highlight your dishonesty, I'm highlighting my own. Yeah. And there's a lot of that that goes off. Or it's spotted and it's challenged from a position of aggression yeah. rather than acceptance mm. um, and pe people confuse acceptance and tolerance a lot and it's like I accept you but I won't tolerate that yeah I accept your thoughts and feelings I don't necessarily accept your behavior and so yeah. then it's about being able to have that understood by the individual yeah however you get there and you have to take different approaches that's, for different people that's boundaries course. isn't it and um th there's one of the things I I kind of always refer to that whether it be it's usually around young people so you know do do kids like boundaries and, and the instinct from a lot of groups is no, they don't, because they're pushing against them all the time. So they think they don't, but actually they do. They need boundaries. Um, and I'm trying to get across, why would I trust somebody that I can manipulate? Yeah. You know, if, if I can coerce you, why would I rely on you? Yeah. Because if I can coerce you, somebody else can, which means you're not trustworthy. You, I can't say that you're going to be loyal because you're too easily manipulated. And it is being really clear with boundaries in the relationship, but also, you know, that, I think that's part of building trust. You've got to be... The, Boundaries aren't barriers. That, that's important to kind of get over. It doesn't mean that rules are rules. And, you know, there needs to be flexibility, but at the same time, not so flexible that you just fall over. There needs to be an element of consistency as well. I mean, yeah. that's that's definitely something that I've, I've strived for, mostly achieve in my line of work. Some, mm. some things have happened that have prevented me from being able yeah, to do that. But it was definitely something I fought for fiercely uh, when I was working at Studio Arts because... Like the, the, the individual has felt let down a lot of the time, whether that's because of their actions or because they actually were let down by a service system or person that 
that doesn't matter. It's the feeling that they're left with. And so they need to feel like that doesn't exist now for, yeah. for any progression to happen. And boundaries as well as structure as well. And we used to see this at Studio House when it came to Christmas time. We had two weeks where it was loan working. So we didn't have full structure. Yeah. And so we'd do a group each time and say, right, well, what groups do you want to keep in place? We'll make sure they're facilitated over the holidays. Of course, they're going to say none. Yeah. And we tried that one year and it didn't work. Yeah, it was yeah. chaos. Right. And it's like, these are grown adults. These ain't kids. Yeah. I mean, these are people who've had jobs and stuff. Yeah. And yet, yet still, without that structure, without those boundaries in place, mm. they devolve into chaos. Is it routine and predictability is... is yeah, it's so underestimated. I think um, I found it like even with, with lockdown and stuff, I had some friends who were like, oh, I'm still in my pajamas. And it was like midday and stuff like that. Oh, what are you doing? Get up, get on, treat it like a normal day. Because it's so easy to go into that path of just going, oh, I'll let it. And you got to kind of, as soon as you start going or losing that habit, I think it can can lead into darker places if you're not careful. you got to kind of, and, and it's easier if, again, whether it be school our parents do this in school holidays as well where it's a case of like we've got this structured routine clear boundary and stuff all through the year and then when it comes to that six weeks where some men just go do what you want, do what you want. Yeah. yeah and then when yeah. it comes to then school time again in september right back to routine yeah and how are you expecting some some kid who's now been doing nothing getting up whenever there's no sleep pattern there shakadia rhythms are out the window suddenly then going and go back to what you were well, they're going to be a mardy little thing for <laughs> the first few weeks at school because their, their routine's all blown out of whack and stuff like that. And that's, I get frustrated with that because it, it, it's fine. I get it. This is when I'm teaching around ADHD. ADHD kids need routine. They'll fight against it tooth and nail, but they need it to feel safe, to be able to cope with life more easily and stuff like that. But then parents say that time off. It's like, you no, know, delay it by an hour. Fine. Like, they can have a light in. It's holidays. But if they usually have an order of what they do, yeah. continue that order. You know, keep that little bit of structure and routine there. Build those neuron pathways of this is just what I do. Because suddenly if that's something I don't need to think about anymore, when I've got this thousand million ideas running through my head, <laughs> then that means I've only got those, not about all the other stuff I've just got to do that's mundane on top of that and stuff like that. So. It's, yeah, I mean, it's something that I needed to recognise personally when... I like moving into this field of work. Is mm. there's things that I have to do to get to do the things I want to do, mm. and recognizing that those are connected, um, and learning how to take responsibility for myself help with that. Because when I start to take responsibility for myself, I recognize causality. Um, one thing leading into another because life was just a bunch of unrelated events for me prior yeah. to that. I didn't recognize cause and effect. Mm. I, I, I didn't witness that. But it's like if if I want to sit there and and explore issues with the key working and and foster an intimate relationship where we can like set some some good groundwork for them to be able to facilitate their own recovery and I witness the sparkle in their eyes as they start to get hope and watch yeah. the magic happen. I've got to be willing to write it up. Yeah. I hate writing. I do. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But it, but it's being able to tie that stuff together and then balance it on the scales. Mm. And it's like does my action or this idea or the, these behaviours, do they take more than they give? Mm. If they take more than they give, I don't do them. If they yeah. give more than they take, but I've got to accept that they take from me. Yeah, yeah. That the, the action that feeds me will also deplete me. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's a nice way of looking at it. Well, yeah, yeah. Some real, real truth bombs in there. <laughs> I'll drop this mic. It's understandable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So to um, obviously we, we've been on a journey. I think we've we've kind of gone through an awful lot of stuff within there. Um, just so we'll kind of draw it to a bit of a close. But is there anything that 
that you think is something invaluable for people to know whether about uh, understanding themselves or whether understanding those who are struggling with alcohol and substance misuse or anything it, kind of to over whether to overcome stigmatization or just the things you wish people had known when you were maybe going through that journey I think people need to talk more uh, and it's like if you feel uneducated on the matter then find that education that you need and, and discuss it with people mm. Um, and so, and and, it, and be be willing to face some stigma based off the ideas that you present to people. Yeah, uh, it's like my addiction was born and fostered in secrecy, uh, and then there was a lot of stuff that I wasn't willing to talk about about who I was because of my perception of how other people may respond. Because I wanted to be liked by everybody, and that's that's never going to happen. Uh, I was asked when I started volunteering, the studio asked, do you want to be liked or respected? And obviously I wanted both because I'm an addict. But, yeah. but when I pondered that question, I thought I want to be respected. And to be liked, I just I need to be what you want from me. Mm -hmm. To be respected, I just need to be me. Yeah. And so, okay, like the first time that I say the thing that is a little bit silly or whatever, I might face a bit of ridicule or whatever. But the more that we talk about this, this stuff, the less sensitive people are to the issue and the more we can actually get into the point of it, which is that we're all human. We've all got daft ideas. We all need a crutch from time to time. And we all need support. Mm. And the closer, the sooner that we get to that, that point, the better, well, rather than everybody thinking that they can man their own ship until they tank it, because that's what people are doing. Yeah, you see, everybody's doing it. It's like I'm the boss. I know what I'm doing. Oh shit! Now, now what am I going to do? Yeah, and then starting again. And like, like I said before, it's like that no man is an island stuff. Uh, and so we, we just need to talk more with yeah. each other and, and be willing to be ridiculed and be willing to have our ideas challenged and yeah. be willing to listen to those challenges and think, well, okay, maybe there's something in that rather than defending the old tired ideas that we hold. Yeah. Because yeah. none of us have got a clue in reality. We're all making it all <laughs> up as we go. Absolutely. Like we talk about where addiction comes from and, and it's like, I have a mini universe inside my brain with all its little pathway, pathways and networks and stuff. And you can say that addiction comes from this and from that. And all yeah. we've found is a workable formula. Yeah. It doesn't actually answer the question. No. We don't actually know. So all we need to do is find a workable formula. Yeah. And it's like as simple as, as the simpler that is, the better yeah. in reality. Yeah. Uh, like if you was to do 12 steps, uh, you can do 12 steps and you can sum it up in six words. Trust God, clean house, help others. Yeah. And if you follow that format, your life will get better. Yeah. And because the more complicated we make it, the harder it is to execute. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, 100%. 100%. Yeah, that's great, man. Thank you very much. Okay. Yeah, I think we've gone through uh, some good points there. Hopefully people find that useful to uh, kind of open up the Discord, you say, even just to ask the questions and uh, and to, to look at it from a different point of view. So thank you very much for coming coming down today. It was really appreciated. Yeah, the long journey from Nottingham. Um, but uh, and, and maybe we'll have you back another time and, and do another session of it if you enjoy it. Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. So thank you very much. And uh, yeah, best. Thanks. Bye.